We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is John Maniscalco. I'm the uh, Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, the topic of today's briefing is Medicaid, and uh, we're expanding Medicaid at a time of uh, constrained budgets and uh, oh. better. Um, so we'll be discussing uh, Medicaid today. Did everyone hear what I had said previously? Most awkward start ever. Okay. <laughs> Um, so for a discussion on uh, the economics of Medicaid and the need for reform, we have a panel of uh, three distinguished experts, and I'll introduce them now. First will be Dr. Jason Fickner. Dr. Fickner is the Senior Research Fellow at the uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on Social Security, federal tax policy, federal budget policy, retirement security, and policy proposals to increase savings and investment. He also serves as an adjunct professor at the Georgetown Public Policy Institute, the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and the Virginia Tech Center for Public Administration and Policy, where he teaches courses in economics, public finance, public policy process, public management, and public budgeting processes. Previously, he, sell, uh, he served in several positions at the Social Security Administration, including as the uh, Deputy Commissioner of Social Security, Chief Economist, and Associate Commissioner for Retirement Policy. He also served as a senior economist with the Joint Economic Committee at, uh, on the Hill. Next, we have uh, Nina Ocherenko, who serves as the director for the Center for Health Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. In this role, she oversees the Heritage Foundation's research and policy prescriptions on issues such as health care reform, Medicare, Medicaid, children's health, and prescription drugs. She, uh, as all, are you, uh, all of you, uh, no stranger to the Hill. She served here for 10 years. Uh, as legislative director to uh, Jim DeMint when he was in the House, and to Sue Myrick. And she began her career on the Hill with the office of the Senator late, or late Senator Jesse Helms. And finally, we have um, Michael Tanner with the Cato Institute. He's a senior fellow where he heads research on a variety of uh, domestic policies with a particular emphasis on health care reform, social welfare policy, and social security. He's the author of numerous books, including Leviathan on the Right, How Big Government Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution, and Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. He has a weekly column with National Review Online and is a contributing columnist with the New York Post. Before joining Cato, uh, Michael Tanner served as Director of Research at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation and as Legislative Director of the American Legislative Exchange Council. And with that, I will turn it over to Jason. Thank you. Appreciate it. Someone's a Mac person. Right, so who knows how to use Mac? Mac guy? Well, I think we have a pro coming up in a second. You can get it first. You are the pro. Now is all this pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Oh. Good deal. Thank you. Sure. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming today. Appreciate it. Can everyone hear me okay? Hard to tell if this is actually, there we go. I got to speak closer. Um, so we're going to go uh, me first, uh, then Nina, uh, then Michael. And I want to give a general overview of Medicaid. I uh, also do what I call a shameless promotion of the re new book that comes out. We have out now. We brought 30 copies. So uh, many of you might be able to get a free copy today. If not, let Trevor know in the front. We can get you one. Uh, Nina has a chapter in the book as well. 
And this is a very important uh, time to talk about Medicaid, obviously, with expansion going on in several states, several states actually considering expansion, uh, debate over the cost, uh, the quality of care, and what does this mean. So let's just start off with some of the charts. This is Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. The reason I want to put up all three for a minute is because when you look at this chart, what's fascinating is for the longest period of time, Social Security was the government's largest entitlement program. Uh, it now takes up roughly about five and a half, almost six percent of GDP, while Social Security is actually still unsustainable uh, from a financial standpoint because payroll taxes alone aren't enough to cover revenues and uh, outfit, sorry, outlays going out. It stabilizes. The baby boomers retire, they stabilize, and it's a share of GDP. If we were to cover it through general revenues, we could actually have a stabilized Social Security. But that's not the case with healthcare. As you see, healthcare starts expanding. If you combine Medicare and Medicaid, Back in 2011, they shifted, and government health care, Medicare and Medicaid combined, became now our largest entitlement. And that growth continues. Uh, one of the things about Social Security reform is, in some ways, it's a math problem. We all could sit up here and talk about what we could do as far as raising taxes, cut benefits, change the formulas, and actually come to how an agreement of who would be affected, how they'd be affected, and what the revenue forecast would be, including the outlay forecast, and agree to it. Whether we'd want the normative framework would be different, but we could agree to the numbers. We don't have that same issue when it comes to health care. We're not sure how fast health care is going to grow. We're not sure we put money in one area, whether or not that leads to better quality care. Uh, there's been a debate whether we give health care to some people, that means they'll reduce consumption someplace else, like emergency care. And we're finding out that's not to be the case. So health care still becomes an issue where we're still discussing the economics of this and what that actually means, but we do see costs increasing. And as we open up the programs to larger and larger beneficiaries, the math that shows in some ways that costs have to go up, at least in total outlays, and cost growth, we think, goes up as well. And this just shows that in some way, shape, or form, if we go out in the far, far future at 2082, the cost of government health care could be roughly 18% of GDP, maybe even higher. We're actually not sure we could actually sustain this. We're not sure if the model will allow for this to actually happen in reality. At some point, this may actually bust before then, and the economy can't support it. But this is the trend line we're on right now. Uh, going to Medicaid. So these are projected Medicaid expenditures, 2012 to 2021. And as you'll see, just for Medicaid alone, as we start getting into the near future, we're looking at spending almost a trillion dollars on Medicaid. Uh, that is huge. Right now, we spend about $780, $800 billion on Social Security. This would get us up to $100 trillion just for Medicaid alone. And again, this is what I call the near future. This is within a decade. But you start going out to 2080, the far future, and you'll see the curve goes up a lot, lot higher. And we start spending about $4.5 trillion. This is state and federal combined. So a lot of the issues is, you know, Medicaid is a basically a federal paid money program or shared expenditures with 50 states. The states run the program, the federal government shares in the payment of it. Um, but combined, the outlays continue. And again, they become in some ways unsustainable. And again, this is total. But here's historical federal and state Medicaid spending. The yellow part of this is the state expenditures, their share. And as you'll see, as we've gone from 1966 to 2011, their share of the state spending has gone up. So the states are being forced to share a higher and higher cost of the burden. This becomes an issue with the state expansion. Even though the federal government says if you expand Medicaid under the ACA, we'll pick up 100% of the cost for the first three years, and then 90% thereafter, that 10% still amounts to a large amount of money. For those of you who have been following the issue of the state of Virginia, uh, recently Virginia announced they have a $300 million shortfall. Um, the cost, once the Medicaid 100% uh, goes down to 90, would be about $200 million a year. 
which means they actually would have a higher shortfall now and it would be 300 to be 500 million. They can't afford it. They're trying to figure out what that means for expansion. One side's pushing it, one side's saying we can't afford it, even with a generous federal subsidy. Um, this is Medicaid expenditures as a share of total state budgets. And again, Medicaid is starting to crowd out other expenditures. As you'll see 24% is Medicaid, 8% is transportation, 30% education, all of the 38%. But you start seeing in some locations, again, Virginia's a great example, it's local. There's been a lot of issues. Fairfax County has some of the best schools in the country, but they're fighting about whether or not they can afford teacher salary increases. Um, what does that mean when it comes to state funding for transportation as well? We want to have better roads, better bridges. There's only so much money, and Medicaid is starting to crowd out the government's ability to fund other projects. And basically, healthcare is taking over our government. Uh, this is Medicaid enrollees on FY 2013. A lot of people just think Medicaid is just for poor people, but it's actually a lot of children. Uh, children are 50%, adult 24, disabled 17, and an age poor, uh, elderly poor, 9%. But a lot of it is also children. We have to keep in mind what that means when we talk about reform and who we're actually trying to give coverage to. Uh, we mentioned that this is basically a uh, state programs. The, it, each 50 states has their own program for Medicaid, and the federal government gives a match uh, to basically help pay for uh, the services and reimburse the services of states. This is the federal medical assistance percentages. The system is designed basically to give more money as a percentage to poorer states, less money to wealthier states. So you'll see, for example, Alabama will have a much higher match per capita than Alaska will or New York will. Uh, but this is how the system's designed. It's designed, again, to encourage uh, the states to participate, but for the poorer states, it gives them a higher percentage match. For the richer states, again, less. So um, those are the basic charts to frame sort of some discussion. Uh, why are we caring about Medicaid today? What are we worried about going forward? And these are the takeaways from, from the book we have. Medicaid is now the largest health insurance provider in the United States. You guys like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Medicaid is the largest. Uh, under the Affordable Care Act, the Congressional Budget Office now projects that Medicaid enrollment will increase nearly 30% by 2024 and federal spending on the program to double over the next decade. For the states, again, Medicaid is already the largest single budget item. Its rapid growth threatens to further crowd out other spending priorities. So it's one thing to have an issue about how much and how large government should be, but even when you get beyond that question of what is the role of government, once we have that settled, there's still expenditures we all want done as the public. We want safety, we want courts, we want roads, we want education. The more we spend on health care in some ways, all else being equal, the less we can spend on something else. So it's crowding out these abilities to spend other programs. The funding structure is fundamentally flawed. Again, Medicaid is a complex state-federal structure. It creates conflicting incentives. Uh, it actually discourages cost savings and efficient care by creating this tension and distrust among federal and state governments, health care providers, and patients. Uh, Medicaid is very confusing. Again, it's a state-run program with federal cost-sharing. But Congress thinks the state should fix it because they say, well, Medicaid is run by the states, so why should we bother? But the states think the federal government should fix it because the federal government's footing a lot of the bill for it. So you have these conflicting tensions of who actually controls Medicaid and who should have the authority and the willpower and the push to actually make changes. Uh, continuing on the structure, there's something called Section 1115 waivers. Um, you might be hearing a lot about this in the news, about governors come to the administration saying, we'd like to do X in Medicaid, but the system you set up really constrains us from providing good quality care, or it's too expensive. Would you give us a waiver on this condition so we can try something else and still cover people? And that goes through a negotiation. They, they can provide some flexibility, but there's uncertainty when it comes to costs for both federal and states. 
And I actually think we're going to see a lot more of these waivers in the future as states' Medicaid costs increase. They're going to come to the federal government and say, we want out of some of this. How do we do it? Uh, we need to point out that there, we're not sure if the trend in the reduction of health care cost growth will reverse. So we talked about the idea of health care costs increasing. There's a way of looking at it of total costs. The more people who are asking for health care and more people provided just leads to higher costs, like A plus B equals C. There's also the inflation component of health care. What happens to the cost of health care on an individual basis over time? Uh, we see basically costs for housing increase, your cars increase, that's inflation. Health care has an inflation component as well. And for a while, health care costs were growing a lot faster than inflation. But they started to tail off a bit. The question is, will that continue? We saw last quarter data that had health care costs increasing 11%. Is that right? About 11%, which is not then decreasing, now is continuing its upward trend. The question was, why were health care costs growth declining? Was it because of the recession and people said they had less disposable income so they weren't going to the doctor? Uh, where at layoffs, people lost health care and didn't have health care coverage by the employer. So again, it was more of a demand side. Um, we're not sure. The administration will tell you it's the ACA, but the ACA was passed well after we started seeing some of these changes. And now that we're starting to see them go back up, everyone's going to blame the ACA. It's a lot more complicated. Fundamental, my, fund, the fundamental issue is, though, if cost care growth, the, the cost of health care continues and reverses and goes back up at a higher trend faster than the rate of inflation, the costs I showed you will be much, much higher, which means further strain on the federal budget, further strain on the state budget, um, and an inability for us to afford and have to crowd out from other programs. Um, the question is also, will the era of fiscal, federal fiscal restraint return? Um, there's been some concerns, and I think rightly so, on some of the governors, that under the current formula for Medicaid expansion of the ACA, where the federal government will pay 100% for the first three years and then 90% thereafter, the federal government could change that. We might see the fact that, again, because of crowding out, we're not able to afford roads, education, defense, anything else you want to fund on. And the federal government say, you know what, that 90% match, that's a little bit too high. Let's scale it back to 80, 75. Or let's just put it all under the current FMAP formula so it's one and one and the same. That would put a tremendous burden on the state then to pay for an expansion they've agreed to, and they don't have the funds for it. Um, that's a concern of some states, and I think rightly uh, a justifiable concern. Um, we have some concerns with the quality of care. So it's, it's one thing, again, from a normative value to say we should provide care to some people that don't have it. But right now we have what we call second-class care at first-class costs. Uh, Medicaid has low physician reimbursement rates, coupled with high administrative requirements. They deter physicians from accepting Medicaid patients to begin with. So it's hard to find a doctor. For Medicaid beneficiary, this leads to poor access and poor health outcomes, including delayed diagnos uh, diagnosis and treatment, a greater reliance on emergency room visits, and higher mortality rates than those with either private insurance or Medicare. It is worth noting that one of the claims the ACA had about, it, about uh, emergency room visits is that those with low income who didn't have health insurance were going to emergency rooms for everything. I have a cold, my kid's sick or something, they show up at the emergency room thinking they could not be deterred. Um, the question then came, wait, if we give them health insurance, then emergency room visits should go down. They'll now go see a primary care physician. What we're finding in an experiment in Oregon is that actually emergency room visits are going up. And part of that is basically because people think, wait, now I got health insurance, it'll be paid for, I can still go to the emergency room. And so we're seeing it go up. So it's the perverse incentives. There's also a question uh, coming up whether or not hospitals will start reducing uh, charitable care for the poor now that we have the ACA. And part of it is there's some uh, reimbursement that go on. Charitable care is not reimbursed, but for Medicaid and the expansion it is. So some hospitals might say to those who come in who did not sign up for the ACA, I'm sorry, I'm not going to treat you. Go sign up for the ACA first and then come back so we can get paid for it. 
Uh, this may reduce, again, a perverse incentive that may reduce in some ways charitable care by private hospitals. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times over the weekend about this. So it's starting to gain some attention, so we'll see if this picks up any steam or not. But again, it goes into the idea, again, of second-class care with first-class costs. Um, while the Affordable Care Act significantly expanded Medicaid's beneficiaries and costs, it failed to address the program's fundamental flaws that produce conflicting incentives, high costs, and again, poor health care. Um, we should point out that there are no easy fixes. If there were, we would have solved it already, and the three of us wouldn't be up here today talking to you. Even the most popular reform proposals will fail to provide a comprehensive solution to Medicaid's problems. Um, while there is no panacea, there is a consensus among many of us that study this issue that any substantial improvement will require changing the incentives inherent in the Medicaid financing formula we have today. Uh, the current system, the way it's structured, is fundamentally flawed, and we need to rethink how that is actually done. Uh, and Michael and Nina are going to spend time telling you how we're hopefully going to do that. Thank you. Can you get it better? Do this any better. Can someone... The Mac is coming back up. Okay. All right. That was easy. Always ask for help, right? Um, well, first, I want to start off by thanking Jason and Mercatus for uh, doing the book and including me and asking me to contribute to it. It really is a one-of-a-kind um, publication. I've been doing Medicaid for a long time, and we really haven't had anything as comprehensive as this book has provided looking at it um, from a variety of angles. So I bring everyone's attention to it, and please do pick up a copy of it. Um, the one thing we can say about the Affordable Care Act is it certainly has started to um, draw some attention on what new troubles in the Medicaid program. So everyone's talking about Medicaid expansion. It's actually forced a lot of people to take a step back and start educating themselves on what is Medicaid and what are the problems that are facing this program as they're weighing the options of what to do with the program moving forward in their state. Um, I would argue that there are three unavoidable challenges. No matter if it's an expansion state, a non-expansion state, this is going to happen regardless of what uh, states decide on Medicaid expansion moving forward. One is we have a demographic problem. This is a big issue of the kinds of people we have in the Medicaid program and what are the trends happening there. The second one is structural challenges to the program, kind of many of the things that uh, Jason kind of alluded to. The underlying how the program is actually organized and structured has a lot of problems moving forward as we uh, look at the Medicaid program in the long term. And then the last one is the fiscal issues, which We've already outlined on many of them, but I think um, kind of re-highlighting them and explaining and exposing why those tensions are actually going to lead to problems that I think will unavoidably lead to folks um, at the state level and the federal level having to actually start to begin to unravel the program and look at real reform. So on the demographic challenges, by 2021, one in four Americans will be on Medicaid. If you look at the breakdown, yes, the vast majority continue to be children, but adults now, because of the Affordable Care Act, will now be like the second largest group that will be, that will be on the Medicaid program. That includes not only the adults that are currently eligible, but this new population of adults that were included in the expansion for the Affordable Care Act. And I would stress then we have the disabled that continue to take a, about a 13% of the population, and then the disabled that are also in the program. 
So I would stress too that this shift towards adult coverage is really, some of it is based on how the financing of Medicaid is, is being offered. As Jason mentioned, there's different financing for the new population, but it's just for that one segment for the new adults. So it creates the incentive for states to kind of chase the new money that's out there. And that then becomes this trend towards getting more people that are eligible for the program under the new category of newly eligible adults focused in that area rather than looking at the other issues. Um, the chief actuary said that much of Medicaid's expenditure growth, both past and future, is due to expansions of eligibility criteria. But per enrollee costs for Medicaid have also usually increased significantly faster than GDP. So why is that important? So here we have the Medicaid enrollment. Now let's look at spending based on those categories of people. If you look at it, now you can tell that enrollment is not equal to spending. We have far more spending happening on the aged and disabled, those that are in the 10%, 16% of enrollment. But the vast majority of spending, both federal and state, are going towards those populations. And so when you look at this, children, considerably large group in the Medicaid program, yet they have less spending on them, including adults. And then we have the two new lines that the Affordable Care Act did, which was expanding to um, newly eligible adults. I would point out that um, the Affordable Care Act, though, when you look at this, did nothing to address that for those first two elements. And as a matter of fact, instead of helping to address these demographic challenges, it actually makes the demographics more complicated, because now you've almost got five different categories of people who are eligible for the program rather than even keeping to the original group of, of populations. So the program is getting more complicated. Enrollment is going to be more diverse. We're going to have different types of people, age, disabled, et cetera. And it's important to note, too, that the GAO has warned that the number of people over age 85 are expected to have a major impact on the long-term spending, long-term care spending in the program. So when we think about, we have this new expansion population under the Affordable Care Act, bringing in really younger aged adults, pre-Medicare age adults folks. And at the same time, we've got a shift of these baby boomers entering into the retirement program, many of which we always think about in Medicare. But as you can tell, there, are a, there is a small but a very costly portion that end up on the Medicaid program. So the demographic challenges are certainly something to be concerned about. So now let's look at the structural challenges. Um, here, it's important to kind of understand how Medicaid traditionally operates. First of all, Medicaid uh, looks at, in essence, this is a later slide, but in essence what happens is patient goes to get health care services through the physician, a Medicaid eligible. The physician, the provider, hospital physician charges the state for the cost of providing the care. The state reimburses the provider and then sends a bill to the federal government for their share. This kind of creates an open-ended and kind of circular system of how people get their health care um, in the Medicaid program. Obviously, it's open-ended, meaning there's not a budget cap anywhere to kind of hold back any spending. So the more services people are using, the more cost that it creates. So it kind of creates this cyclical system. And it's very difficult to not only budget for Medicaid at that with this kind of ongoing cycle, but it's also difficult to manage the care that those people are getting. So there's not any kind of way to coordinate what is it that people are showing up at the emergency room? Where are they getting their health care and how is it organized as a way to actually get at any kind of real fundamental reforms to Medicaid or how to fundamentally reform the structure of it? Typically, what does this lead to? Well, states are then saying, well, how am I going to get, get a handle on this increased spending, all these in and out 
very costly expenditures. So the first thing they do is they say, well, we'll look at reimbursements to the physicians in the hospitals, and we'll start narrowing down that. Again, they're trying to control the cost. So they're saying, we'll just reimburse these providers less. Well, not only do they look at the provider side of who they're going to pay for the services, they're going to pay you less for providing the care, they also begin to look at the benefit side and figuring out how do you restructure some benefits in a way that will maybe limit the, the scope of what you're getting. So you're eligible for benefits, but when you look underlying, it may not be as generous as originally um, thought of. And if you, if you are following any of the things on the exchanges, this is a similar um, trend that we're seeing in the exchanges where insurance plans, you're saying you're getting your plan, but when you really dig in deep, you see that the networks are very narrow, the individuals and hospitals and the kinds of care you can get, including prescription drugs, are limited based on uh, the selection. So what is the result? Well, you typically have fewer doctors wanting to participate in the Medicaid program because they're not getting reimbursed, as Jason mentioned many times, far well below the Medicare rates, and including, um, and especially in the private market. You have less access to the care and the networks of things that you want, and then that obviously leads to lower quality. So that's been kind of the trend the states have been playing over the since its inception. We'll just slash re reimbursements, we'll start limiting benefits, and that's the way we will quote unquote control costs. Well, that really hasn't done very well. So I think beginning um, in the, probably in the late 90s, we began to see this trend towards managed care at the state level. I think part of it was um, many governors realized that they actually weren't very good at, per at being insurance plans or running an insurance plan. Um, as we said, they were sliding down, they had fewer providers, and yet costs were continuing to increase. So as a need to get to more care management and cost management, they started looking at managed care. How do we integrate the private insurers from the private sector into Medicaid and allow them to kind of manage the care like a real insurance plan? Um, this uh, chart right here just shows what the trend has been. So in 1995, there were about 15% of enrollees enrolled in, Medicaid, in a Medicaid managed care plan. And now by 2011, we'll have over half of enrollees that will be in some form of Medicaid managed care moving forward. Um, and this trend, I suspect, is going to continue even more because traditionally, the, uh, the states kind of looked at the easy population, so moms and kids, the original um, low, low uh, income population were put into the managed care plans. Very few went into the area of the disabled or the, or the um, elderly that are low income. But we are seeing a trend now with governors across the board in red states, blue states, purple states, who are looking at integrating managed care even in the more complicated populations where this is the the um, proposition is if they could manage the care better in those high cost groups, those uh, disabled and the elderly adult um, populations, if you can control the cost there, it'll save the state money. So it really wasn't getting them much savings by just dealing with the with the inexpensive populations. Now the trend is moving to really getting at the complex uh, groups. Um, that leads me to the point of waivers. So when the trend in Medicaid managed care started, it started through a waiver program and, and the states created these waivers, uh, submitted waivers for it. The Section 115 waivers, as Jason talked about, are kind of the newer trend. They've always been a significant part of the, pop, of, of the Medicaid program. But the idea is to provide states with some flexibility to test new approaches to how to deal with the Medicaid population. 
Today, there are over 30 states in the District of Columbia that have at least at least one of the 115 waivers. So many states have multiple 115 waivers. And that's because not only can they be comprehensive, meaning they may deal with some kind of idea, uh, innovation for a disabled population, but they can be very targeted as well, maybe a specific group of disabled, maybe HIV patients. So it's a complex approach um, to the waiver process. As was noted, it has to be budget neutral for the federal government, and it's time limited, so it's five years, and then they usually can re-up for another uh, three-year extension. But the process, when you talk to the states, what they say is the process is very long. The negotiation process can go on for a significant amount of time going back and forth. Secondly, um, if you look at what the states have been doing with these, they really are looking at how to expand eligibility and expand benefits to the existing populations or to, to bring in new people into the program. Um, and how do you deliver those care, the care more efficiently? I would argue that we will likely not see real fundamental reform coming out of the 115 waivers. I do think states are gonna be using them more, but I don't think that we will see radical reforms happening that will spread across the country. I think it will continue to kind of go down this trend of how do we think we can make the government work more efficiently for the people who we have locked into the Medicaid program. Um, now the fiscal challenges that we face in Medicaid. Uh, um, Jason alluded to this, but I thought this is an interesting chart looking at Medicaid spending is going to accelerate regardless of the Affordable Care Act, and as a matter of fact, actually gets much worse under the Affordable Care Act. This trend line shows not only uh, the current baseline scenario, but let's say all states do end up, some people are arguing that, oh, eventually all the states are going to end up expanding the Medicaid program to the new population. What does that look like um, versus a no expansion? In any of these scenarios, we're really already underwater. And I think Jason made a great description of what those challenges are moving forward. Um, we also have a problem at the state level. And I think this is really one of the uh, very enlightening charts. Jason mentioned, as we said, that many of these are, uh, that Medicaid is the largest portion of state budgets. But when you start to dig one layer deeper, we see really what's a more problematic trend. When you look at the red on the side of Medicaid, so yes, Medicaid is 23%, about 24% of all state spending, and then education, it's 20%. So yes, Medicaid has a larger portion. But what I find most troubling is that over, and I guess you can't see it that well on here, but over 63%, that big red piece under Medicaid, are the federal dollars coming into the Medicaid program. So when the states are spending, the vast majority of their spending is this dependence on the federal dollars that are coming. So the matching rate, all those dollars that are coming in through the federal government to the states. And then when you look at it compared to um, education, it's a much lower percentage, it's 21%. And even many people say that's too much for the education portion. But you see the discrepancy here. And it does kind of illuminate, I think, the real challenges that Medicaid faces moving forward and why the partnership that exists today of the federal government matching the state spending really is going to continue to kind of have a snowball effect moving forward. So um, I know that uh, Michael's going to talk a little bit more on the expansion side, so I'll leave that mainly to him. But let, let me talk about a couple of things that we, I've been uh, noodling around with on reforms. The first thing in the short term is really from a state perspective, states need to focus on their current obligations and not look at expanding to new obligations. We have a lot of governors considering well, whether we should expand the Medicaid program or not. 
Um, and as we have pointed out, the Medicaid program really isn't working for the current populations. And simply adding new populations on is almost like adding new po populations onto the Titanic. I mean, why are you adding more people onto the program when we know it's broken? So I think states need to really think about what they want to do and reform their existing underlying program, not look at adding more people to it. At the federal level, I think it need, the federal policymakers need to in, end the enhanced match that was included in the Affordable Care Act. It creates, as I mentioned, really perverse incentives. So the states are now chasing that 90% match rate for a very small group of newly eligible people, rather than, again, thinking about, well, what, what should we be doing with the disabled? What should we be doing with the elderly? What about children in this situation? So it creates a really um, confusing and a, a disjointed way of dealing with the matching program, and I think it could set a precedence for the next round of then a new eligibility group, let's say the children saying, why? Why don't we get 90% matching rate if these you know, non-disabled, childless adults are getting 90%, yet children, you know, the very important group to many people in the Medicaid program are not getting, they're getting the regular matching rate, or the disabled. I mean, you can see how this can really snowball out of, out of control. So I think at least, at the very least, they need to end the enhanced match and have everyone treated equally under the Medicaid program for the time being. And the, on both the federal and state level, we need to see more efforts to expand competition and accelerate the competition within the Medicaid program through the adoption of Medicaid managed care, but broadening that to having you know, competition within the managed care programs, not having one contract for one insurer to handle the whole population, really start injecting what we think are free market reforms into the Medicaid program. And that can be done whether through a waiver system and actually having the federal government giving greater flexibility for doing that. And then longer term reforms, and this um, is really looking at, as we said, this is a very diverse population. And instead of you know, making consolidating, we're actually expanding further. So I think when looking at long-term reform of Medicaid, we really need to break up the populations altogether. This can't be a one-size-fits-all program anymore. And you've got to deal with the elderly in one way. You've got to deal with the disabled population and the policies in another way, children in another way, and families with the children in, in one way, and then the childless adults in another. So I think that's first and fundamental. We've got to break up the program. And then we've got to rethink how we're financing those populations and what's the most effective way that includes a budgeted amount so we get away from kind of the open-ended budget system and get us more towards targeting the assistance where it's needed the most. And I would argue that moving moms and kids into a real market where they can purchase private health insurance, not through a government exchange where it's simply kind of a bleeding off of the Medicaid program, but in a real robust marketplace is the first place to start. Looking at how do we combine elderly so that they're not seen as poor first, that they're seen as seniors first, and the question of whether they're, elderly, whether they're poor is secondary. And then finally, really focusing Medicaid in its traditional form on the most difficult to reach, which are these disabled populations that have multiple conditions that the marketplace um, has difficulty addressing. So with that, I think I will leave it. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to contact me. I look forward to the discussion. Yeah, that's the easiest one yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I thank you very much, and I appreciate you guys and such an incredibly beautiful day out there, sitting here and listening to people talk about Medicaid. So uh, clearly, masochism is uh, something running rampant on the Hill. Uh, 
I also I want to I want to thank Jason and Nina and the Mercatus Center for this book. I mean, this is this is a really valuable tool. It, it's on my desk, and I, I consult it at least once a week, and uh, since it's come out, so it's 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 really a valuable tool. And I do urge anybody here who's into the Medicaid to, to be taking a serious look at it because it's it's very important. Uh, I think Washington is really kind of a unique place. I mean, it's certainly very different than the private sector, uh, as we all know. And one of the fascinating things about it is you find something that's a program that's clearly in trouble, as you've just heard, and the Medicaid program uh, offering poor care at an enormous cost. And the answer here in Washington is, well, let's do a whole lot more of it. Uh, you know, we're going to do a Medicaid expansion. Uh, in the states, and we have about 26 states in the District of Columbia now that have gone ahead and, uh, and expanded, including a number of, of Republican-led states. You see New Mexico and Ohio and now Indiana, uh, maybe Pennsylvania, all moving in the direction of, of expanding uh, this program. And, uh, you know, if you listen to some one side of the debate, I read the editorials in the Washington Post on a regular basis about the debate in Virginia, and it seems like, well, kind of a no-brainer. Why, why doesn't every state just go ahead and expand the Medicaid program? It's, it's working so well. Uh, but the really, a lot of this is based on kind of a, a mythology that's out there on, on the Medicaid program. And I really want to kind of run through this a little bit. You've heard a lot about it already, but I just want to make a couple of points. One is we're told all the time that states should expand their Medicaid program because it won't cost them anything. This is, after all, a whole bunch of free money, uh, apparently, that uh, has grown on a little tree out behind the Treasury building. And then it gets shipped to the states, and it is just there for them. Because, after all, the, the federal government is supposed to, uh, to pay for 100 percent of the, the cost for the first three years. Well, one year has gone by now, so it's actually only two years left. But, uh, but it'll pay for two years, and then it gradually phases down to 90 percent. And, you know, federal government's going to pay 90 percent. That's almost like being free. Uh, except for the fact that 10 percent of a really big number is still a really big number. Uh, if you want to look at the cost of some of these states, uh, they're looking at this. In Pennsylvania, for example, the 10-year cost of the Medicaid expansion for the state government is $2.84 billion over 10 years. In Virginia, we're looking at about $1.3 billion over 10 years. That's hardly free. Uh, you know, that, that's real money, even, even by uh, Virginia standards, I guess. Uh, and second, I don't think that really captures all the costs. They keep talking about this 90% match. What they kind of leave out of this 90% match is that that's only for the newly eligible as a result of the expansion. That's for the people who uh, come in because they've raised the level of eligibility because of the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. But what's going to happen in all of these states is that there's a population out there that's currently eligible for Medicaid but for various reasons haven't signed up. Many of them have private insurance already, uh, but they're eligible for Medicaid. And some are uninsured and are eligible for Medicaid and haven't signed up. Well, once you get going on the expansion and you start doing the advertising and you mailing and people are going to go door to door asking, have you signed up for Medicaid and get stuff, you know, phone calls, trees and all these sorts of things going on that, a lot of these people who are currently eligible are going to suddenly realize, hey, I can get Medicaid and they're going to sign up. Robert Woods Johnson Foundation refers to this as the woodwork effect, that these people are coming out of the woodwork. Well, when they sign up for Medicaid, they don't get that 90% federal match. They're under the old matching formula, which in some states could be you know, as low as 50% uh, that they could get. So the states could be eligible for a whole lot of additional money for those folks. 
The other part that kind of goes with this that's free is this idea well, that, okay, okay, we're just, states are just getting their own money back. Uh, you know, this is, and you hear this a lot in Virginia. Terry McCall's all the time talking about if we don't pay this, the money's just going to go to New York and California and stuff like that. So we just got to get our own money back. You know, this is, this is the same type of uh, argument that you hear in a, a lot of places in, uh, you know, that says, okay, well, we have to have a study of the sex life of bull weevils uh, for our state university paid for by, by the federal government because if we don't get that, they'll give it to a university in some other state. So we just want our taxpayers to get that money back. And this, of course, has no relationship at all to total federal spending. And, and the fact is there's not a specific set-aside pool of money for Medicaid that if Virginia expands the Medicaid program, well, New York will just get a little less money because uh, that money will be shifted to Virginia. Instead, what's going to happen is the total amount of spending on Medicaid will go up. And that means that the amount of taxes that Virginia taxpayers have to pay to the federal government will go up. And everybody can't be a winner. Every one of the 50 states is not a state where people get back more, <laughs> ultimately, than they pay in, state, in combined taxes. Well, I guess they can because we can borrow that money from China and make the children pay for it. But ultimately, somebody's going to have to pay for all that money that's being spent on Medicaid, regardless of where it comes from. It's not just free, free money. After all, think about it. If it was only getting your own money back, why send it to Washington in the first place? You know, why not just keep it in Virginia and let Virginians do what they want to do with it instead of sending it off to Washington first and then getting it back uh, type of thing? So I think we could do, look at that. Well, all this cost might be somewhat justifiable if it actually did a whole lot of good. You know, if we really were doing a massive expansion uh, of the amount of people with health care and that was getting them better health and they were all living longer and it was doing a whole bunch of good, we could say, okay, we could debate whether the cost-benefit was worth it. But it turns out we're not actually doing a whole lot of good by expanding the Medicaid program. In fact, we may even be doing a little bit of positive harm in doing it. Now, I know there's some studies out there that, you know, that, that purport to show that if we expand Medicaid, we'll save all, the, all these lives uh, out there. Charlie, uh, Charlie Crist uh, down there in Florida uh, is running an ad against Rick Scott saying that Rick Scott's failure to get Medicaid expansion passed, he actually supported it but couldn't get it passed. Uh, the failure to get it passed is costing uh, four Floridans their life every day or something like that. There's no real evidence to suggest this, to support this. The, the type of studies that were done that, that show this sort of thing were really poorly designed. Uh, what they basically did was they took two people, one had health insurance, one didn't have a health insurance, and looked at them, and then 20 years later they looked to see if they were still alive or not. Nobody knows what happened in between. Uh, and they said, oh, okay, people who had, didn't have health insurance back here were more likely to be dead in the future, so, so that we can, you know, nobody would design a scientific experiment that way, really. Uh, in fact, we do actually have a pretty good scientific experiment. It took place in Oregon. You had a little bit of allusion to this earlier. Uh, Oregon actually had a, had a terrific case where they had a specific amount of money, and they had more people who wanted to sign up for the Medicaid program than they had money to service them. So they were able to take the people who applied for Medicaid and randomly assign them to either being in the Medicaid program or not. So you had two identical populations, one getting the Medica Medicaid and one not getting Medicaid, and then look at the results. And they found a few interesting things from this. Number one, they found that people who got Medicaid went to the doctor more. Okay, not a, not a big surprise. They're more likely to go to, go to the doctor. They had insurance, and the, that's the whole idea of giving people the insurance is they can see the doctor. So they did. They went to the doctor more often. Interestingly, as, as you heard, they didn't go to the emergency room less. In fact, they actually went to the emergency room more. 
because uh, it turns out that the reason why people on Medicaid go to the emergency room isn't that they don't have insurance or that it has to do with the hours they work. It has to do with getting a primary care physician and the low reimbursement rates prevent that. Uh, it has to do with a lot of other factors besides whether or not you're insured or not. So now that they had something that was going to pay for their emergency room visit, they actually showed up more often and went to the emergency room more. They actually had better self-reported health. It was interesting. When you asked them, you know, what, are you in good or excellent health and so on, they were more likely to say, yeah, I'm in good or excellent, he excellent health after they got on Medicaid. Interestingly, though, they reported that they had better self-better health regardless of whether or not they'd ever seen a doctor in between. So there might have been a little bit of a placebo effect sort of going on there. If you actually looked at health outcomes, there was no improvement. They weren't any better health outcomes between the Medicaid group and the non-Medicaid group, uh, by and large, just a couple of little things. But generally, there was no better outcomes between the two. Now, it's only a short period of time. We only have a few years. We don't know what will happen in 10 or 20 years. We can look down the road, and we'll be able to see more on that. But at the very least, right now, we, it's an open question whether or not you're even better off than not having health insurance. One of the things we do know is you're worse off on Medicaid than having private health insurance. Numerous studies show that you are less likely to get a doctor's appointment if you call up, you say, hey, I'm on Medicaid versus, hey, I'm on, on Blue Cross. You're, much, you're less likely to get a, an appointment. You're going to wait about twice as long to get that appointment if you do get one. The care you receive is going to be more cursory and the outcomes are going to be worse. We know that. And yet, when we expand the Medicare, Medicaid program, we also know that there are people out there who have private insurance today who are going to move into the Medicaid program for one reason or another. They work for a small business that says, hey, you know, it's a lot cheaper if I let, let my taxpayers pick up this than if I provide insurance for them, so I'm going to dump my employees and they're going to go into the Medicaid program. Or there's people who are paying for insurance today and really struggling to pay for it, and they say, hey, wait a minute, I can have more money to spend on other things if I, let them, if I go on the Medicaid program. And there's people going to move off of private insurance into the Medicaid program. The Robert Woods Johnson Foundation and others have documented this crowd-out effect substantially. But that means that people are going to move from good insurance, or at least tolerable insurance, to really lousy insurance. So we're actually going to decrease their access to care and the type of care they get, the quality of that care, by moving them from private insurance to Medicaid. At the same time, we increase the cost for taxpayers. So we're actually going to do more harm than good as we move through this. Lastly, I want to mention one other thing, which is that some states, you see in Arkansas, Indiana, if you, maybe in Pennsylvania and some others, talking about this idea that, well, we can do sort of a, a conservative Medicaid reform by letting people with, who are in the Medicaid program buy private health insurance with Medicaid dollars, sort of buy-in, kind, of kind of a voucher type approach to it. And you know, I think this comes from a lot of sort of Republicans who, who sort of hear the idea of private insurance and swoon. Uh, but the reality is this is not a particularly uh, attractive reform because you're not really dealing in a competitive market. It's not that you're letting people go out and find the best type of insurance for them. What you're dealing with is a very regulated, very limited market where the HHS is still setting all the standards for which all these insurance must have, what benefits it must have within basically everything within the, that marketplace is being regulated from Washington. So you're not getting any real competition. And in fact, what you're simply doing is requiring people on Medicaid to take their, that money and buy overpriced insurance. There's actually studies that show, for example, in Arkansas that you might end up actually paying more on a per, uh, per patient basis than you would, without, uh, would under traditional Medicaid. So you're not necessarily, you're getting better quality, I guess, but you're not necessarily getting, getting a lower cost.
uh, in this. Lastly, one last thing I just want to mention, because it was mentioned briefly earlier, is that, uh, is that these governors are really counting on the federal government to, uh, to keep its word on this 90 percent uh, match in the future. Uh, I think, you know, that trusting Washington is not necessarily always the best thing to do. And in fact, we actually have some evidence of that. If you all remember the, uh, the fiscal cliff that we were going to go over a couple of years ago, we had that big last-minute negotiation in December to prevent crashing and burning uh, on January 1st. Well, towards the end of that, the Obama administration actually put on the table, very briefly, something called a blended rate for Medicaid reimbursement. This was moving away from the 90 percent to kind of match, push that 90 percent and the traditional match together and would come out somewhere probably around 70 percent instead of 90 percent. They put that on the table for a few hours. They, as soon as they put it on the table, Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi had a stroke and then they, it immediately uh, it, it was pulled off the table. But it was there. And it'll be back because of the financial situation that you see in the future. So any governor that's doing this, and what we're now seeing is this self-protection thing says, well, we'll expand Medicaid for two years, and then we'll, if the federal government doesn't come through, we can always take it back. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> now, when was the last time that a state or, federal, or the federal government or anybody said, oh, we put out this program, we can't pay for it anymore, we'll just cancel it? You know, not going to happen. So before you dive into that hole, I think you got to look at this very closely. Thank you.